And I, and I tried to protect myself in many different ways from that experience, but I, I think there was like a point where I realized that there was not much that I could do. I can't thing. change people. And I've really felt that way as long as I can remember. Acceptance for my mother uh, was more than everything for me. Welcome back to Miss Radio, guys. This is a special treat. Quam has taken over Miss Radio for this episode. Three members of the Queer and Allies of Miss Club, Caitlin Shepard, Carlos Gonzalez Bernier, and Alejandro Umberto, sat down for a conversation about the intersectionality they've experienced of their identities. What does that buzzword mean in that context? It means they aren't unidimensional. They have many different facets of their identities, and we're going to hear them explore those facets on this episode of Miss Radio. They're going to talk about how they've experienced their queerness uh, at home and abroad, and all I know is I learned a lot listening to it. I have a feeling you will as well, and we'll all learn to appreciate these really awesome members of our community even more. All right, you're going to hear from Caitlin first. This is her story. First of all, I just want to kind of express some gratitude that we can actually come here together and have this conversation about um, what does it mean to be queer? What does it mean to be queer on campus at a place like Miss? How do our identities um, show up and how we kind of navigate through this place and through our studies with um, our identities as they are? And um, I guess my story, I'll try and make this brief. Um, feel like my personal identity today I will I will kind of uh, label myself as non-binary or genderqueer um, but I think the best explanation that I can offer is that I always feel like my identity is fluid and evolving and I've really felt that way as long as I can remember I remember in middle school and high school um, whether it be my mother or my friends kind of projecting onto me of like oh, this boy is really cute or whatever. Um, but I never really, um, or, you know, just pr trying to provide me some guidance of how to dress or how to express myself. And it never really felt right either way. Um, and for me personally, it wasn't until, um, I always felt a little bit different from my peers and from my group of friends, and I didn't exactly know why that was, and it wasn't until I was in college that I really came to terms with my queer identity and actually came out as queer, um, like really publicly. And it was in this place that I encountered, it was really through writing, um, through creative writing, um, through critical theory and and writing that I was able to find my voice, find myself um, buried deep inside my soul and kind of had to uncover and unearth a lot of, um, I don't even know how to explain it. I feel like it was just baggage of thinking about, um, I should be this way or I should be that way because I am female, I need to act in this way or I need to dress this way or behave in this way in order to please these people or you know, fill in the blank, whatever. Um, but it was through creative writing that I felt I really was able to capture my own voice. And that was, that's kind of um, carried me through to this day in, it gave me confidence to, um, to not feel like I had to be anything other than who I am in this moment and how I feel and that that is okay to express myself as is in the moment. And I think that sometimes that concept of identity as fluid is really hard for people to come to terms with simply because um, we like labeling things, we like identifying things, we like certainty. And so when there's some level of uncertainty, especially when it comes to something as simple and as complex as our identity, that can throw a lot of people off, um, including myself, that's still kind of a struggle. Um, but yeah, that's kind of a little intro as to how I relate to my own identity as a genderqueer person and how it shows up in the world. The next voice you'll hear is that of Alejandro. Uh, so as someone who identifies as both uh, queer and religious, specifically uh, Roman Catholic and gay, um, I feel that one story in particular that highlights, or for me was a momentous of occasion of reaffirming identities, was my mom's acceptance story of 
uh, my sexuality. Mind you, I come from a very Latino, very Mexican background, so quite conservative, um, quite religious. And um, for the longest time, and not just for my mom, but also for me, it was kind of a hard issue trying to grapple with these two identities that to some extent seem conflicting, but over time I realized that that's not the case. Um, so with my particular story, one day my mom just approached me and she was like, I had a dream. Uh, and I, I was curious about said dream because she literally just approached me out of nowhere. And she told me that she experienced a divine revelation, if you will. Um, she said that in her dream, there was, again, I'm paraphrasing, but there was some imagery, there was white, like symbolism. And essentially what came out of this dream is that she said that God uh, reassured her that everything was going to be all right with me being gay. And again, as someone who's never experienced the supernatural or had a supernatural encounter, but who accepts the fact that, you know, for some people that might be the case, uh, it was very promising and very, uh, how shall I phrase this? Uh, very reassuring to know that both God in my life was reassuring me and my mom that these two identities were all right. And acceptance from my mother uh, was more than everything for me. Um, so again, uh, I think if anything, that specific, event, that specific event showed me that it's all right to identify with these two uh, identities, if you will. Um, obviously, there'll be a bit of censorship within one community over the next. Um, again, for both communities, both the queer and uh, religious communities, they seem to be a little mutually exclusive, but I'm trying to bridge the gap between those two. And there are other scholars out there, um, both theologian-wise or queer scholars out there who are trying to advocate for this uh, connection between the church and uh, the gay community. Finally, the next voice is that of Carlos. Thank you so much. Um, I grew up in the U.S. and in Puerto Rico, and those um, being American and Puerto Rican has been a huge part of uh, my identity in some ways. Uh, both cultures really influenced who I am. Um, but growing up in Puerto Rico till I was 11, I think, um, was kind of formative um, and it really informed like my psyche uh, in positive and negative ways. And I think that now as I, when I, when I moved to California, actually, there was a lot more um, freedom. I knew that there was something in me that in California just, it resonated and I felt free from something and I didn't know what that was. And, um, and then, so once I got there, I, felt like it was easier for me to express who I was, but I couldn't put it into words. Um, so as I grew up, came out when I was like 15 to my high school friends, I realized that that was the discomfort that I was facing, was that. And I came out as gay, or as bisexual first and then gay. <laughs> and then... <laughs> had to break up with my girlfriend and then um for for me school became like a huge safe haven because that's where I succeeded that's where I could express myself and then home became this kind of burden in a lot of ways uh especially being in from the bay area i mean it's it's so accepting um that people don't understand that privilege sometimes like living in such a place where there's so much more freedom than places like Puerto Rico or um, but a lot of those places are changing too. Um, but it, it was a privilege and I, I really loved uh, growing up in that area. Um, and as I grew older and I started, I continue exploring still like different parts of my identity in, in so many different ways. And um, I'm starting to lean more and more into being queer because the political connotation that comes with that and all of those things that I believe um, queer comes with. And I want to be part of that community and a little step away a little bit more from being gay um, because being gay is usually less, um, you think about uh, cis, white, white male gay spaces. Um, and 
that political um that political identity kind of informed like what I wanted to do with the rest of my life and something that I thought about a lot was doing international service um which didn't end up working out <laughs> and I'm okay with that um it was uh I realized that it, like I'm too queer for to be living in the, <laughs> uh to be living in rural Costa Rica um, and that's okay. Um, I think like I was not ready for it. And also the people that I was living with weren't ready to face someone that was, um, maybe, uh, outwardly queer. And, um, and I, and I tried to protect myself in many different ways from that experience. But I think there was a point where I realized that there was not much that I could do. I can't change people. Um, and I had to think about my personal safety before, um, before uh, thinking about changing other people's minds. And my personal safety became more important. Um, this happened back in April and May of 2018. I moved back in to my parents' house in Long Island, New York. And that's kind of, and I think, when I think about fluidity and identity, um, I feel like I transformed in some way where I realized that I was much more comfortable with my femininity and I was much more comfortable with my political outwardness. Maybe sometimes I didn't agree with America in some ways and I didn't, uh, and I became more like Caribbean in some ways. Uh, but I, I'm still flowing through that and I, I'm still not sure how to approach it sometimes. And that's kind of, the interesting part about being queer is uh, being queer and brown. You navigate so many different spaces. Um, and that happens for many people that hold um, these really big identities um, that are not, um, they're not like held for larger society. Um, and I really am honoring right now the fact that I'm in this huge in between <laughs> of who I am and trying my best to be a queer and an ally at the same time. Um, so, and that is my story. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, thanks. I really liked the word flow that you mm -hmm. used um, to kind of describe that flow. Um, yeah. Trying to navigate one's own identity and stepping into... Um, or what it, what it brought up for me is this idea of allowing oneself to explore and kind of freeing oneself from the shoulds and the coulds and the woulds about oneself, um, whether that be desire-based or self-expression-based right. and allowing oneself to explore that. Mm. Yeah. I think like there's a lot of ways in which allowing like leaning into for example for me it was like leaning into my caribbeanness um made it so interesting for me to be queer in the u.s but i'd also like i had to grapple with a lot of things that being caribbean contradicts with being like maybe like a liberal american per se mm -hmm. um and i'm still navigating through that um but yeah i thought that that was and I think for your story, you always, like I remember you mentioning that. Uh, I mean, you say like today I'm non-binary queer, but <laughs> might change tomorrow. <laughs> might change tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I love that so much because it's so true. Like, I mean, I think I feel like we just project onto the world like we are this person and that's gonna be it forever, and that's not true. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it sometimes can even be dangerous to cling to that. To, and I feel like in a lot of ways, my experience at Miss has been, mm -hmm. yes, I've been openly queer for a while and have held the belief that, you know, oneself is always evolving. But then I feel like at Miss, I've realized how hypocritical I am in that own department of my life sometimes. Yeah. And that yeah. it's been this process. I feel like it's Velcro ripping of like, God, like, who am I really trying to find <laughs> a voice in not not only this community but how do you how do you embody and be yourself in your entirety um in a way that is true for you and that you don't feel like you have to compromise um 
and I don't want to project onto anyone's experience, but I feel like that has been a little bit of a, a, of a struggle for me is kind of navigating and owning my queer identity and how it sometimes gets conflated, not conflated, but just how it, how it intersects with like professionalism and how Mm. we're encouraged to present ourselves as professionals. But what does that actually mean for someone that, um, doesn't necessarily believe or resonate with what is being prescribed as professional. Mm. Um, Because for me, what that brings to mind is, you know, your white cisgendered male is like the standard of like a professional in a field, you know? Um, I mean, that's a big blanket (laughs) statement, but that's kind of the image and the kind of the feeling that it conjures up for me. Mm. Um, Yeah. Alejandro, you're going to NASA this week. How Mm -hmm. do you feel about being like queer gay professional in the world especially in the world of education international education well what caitlin was saying earlier definitely i mean it's a very valid fear uh, and struggle and i think it touches upon the issue of code switching Mm -hmm. and navigating between different communities Um, from a professional standpoint i don't know i feel like there does tend to be a bit of self-censorship but not so conscious i just don't think it's something i have to bring to the table when i'm like communicating or interacting with people on a professional standpoint should Mm -hmm. they ask i mean i don't know why they would but should they ask (laughs) obviously i'll be genuine and honest about it Mm -hmm. but that being said i think that's one thing i kind of struggle with is trying to trying to be as genuinely authentic as i can at all times because you're right your identity is constantly in flux uh like you said, from a given day, given hour, given second, maybe, possibly, uh, you might not be the same person. And for me in particular, it's just, it really is trying to check myself um, when I am witnessing myself go through these code switching experiences. It's like, okay, did I do that just to feel like I fit in? Did I do that as a way of, I don't know, improving my image in that person's mind? And how do I make sure I'm just presenting myself in the most authentic way possible? I don't know if either one want to touch upon that. Oh, I mean, I think yeah. we both. <laughs> <laughs> you hit the nail on Code switching, there. right? Yeah. <laughs> Code switching within the same linguistic context, yeah. I, <laughs> I mean, intersectionality. Yeah. Code switching. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, do you do you have something to say about that? You're also going to NAFSA. I am yeah, also, going, also to going to NAFSA. <laughs> um, I guess for me personally, I feel like I feel like I'm at a point where I don't care anymore. In that, I understand that in certain situations there are consequences still for um, queer bodies in this country and around the world. Um, but I feel almost a sense of responsibility of always being out um, to not only provide a, a layer of, of visibility, but I don't know. I guess it's not really, it, I think I mentioned this in my story, but it's really not something that I, my, my queerness, my queer identity is not something that I think about and, until it's kind of brought up in my environment. And then I remember, oh yeah, I'm, I guess I'm being perceived as queer. Um, but how it lives and how I relate to it in my body and in my consciousness, it's not um, at the forefront of like, mm-hmm. you know, hello, it's Monday. What will a queer person do today? What should I do? <laughs> you know, it's not like that. But I guess um, mm-hmm. I haven't been brief, but just to mm-hmm. finish that thought, it's um, if someone disagrees with my identity or has a problem with it, I either... It's not like I say, okay, bye, but it's, you know, I either seek it as an opportunity to educate or if it's over the line and they just don't want to 
hire me or interact with me because of that, then mm. I, what, what do you you're do? Lost. Like, yeah. like, you're like, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tough luck for you. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. It's a funny one. Uh-huh. I think like, and I, I definitely think about being queer all the time. Like I am queer in every space and like I can tell that even here people look at me differently because I don't look like, you know, I'm just like, I don't know, whatever it is. <laughs> um, but um, I really like, I thought about this like obviously because I was working in Costa Rica, in rural Costa Rica. Um, and as a child, like I always knew there was something different from me and people noticed and like I have a lesbian aunt and I remember her just being like you're like my favorite (laughs) and I was like she was like my safe space when I was a child but it was kind of like I feel like now I realize that she it was her telling me just like be careful Mm. with who you because of I I know who you are (laughs) um so like she saw through me and I think like that um the tenderness that I felt around her and the tenderness that versus the tenderness that I felt around my like immediate family was very different. Um, so I think that that really like was implemented in my psyche and I, I carried that through, um, and doing international development work, I think can be very dangerous for someone who, for any queer person, but particularly in my experience, at least as like someone who grew up in California and I was very much accepted by friends and I didn't really have a lot of issues in high school. Um, kind of going back into the closet was like a huge shock for me. And I thought, I thought I was going to deal with it fine. I lived in the Dominican Republic before, um, lived in, you know, Puerto Rico before. So I was like, what's another country? And then I was like, oh no, it's like, it still sucks. It's not that great. (laughs) So it's like making sure that like, um, so I think like it's, it's a little bit difficult just because the mentality like can happen. And this is not to say that every person that I faced in rural Costa Rica treated me as like whatever, like a pedophile or something like that. Um, but, um, they, there were people actually that really like accepted who I was, which I would thought it was really, I'm not being brief at all, but as, uh, <laughs> it's very surprising to me. And it was really awesome to see that like people see through you. Mm-hmm. Um, and in professional settings, I think that, um, I just try really hard to just make sure that it's like, I'm a professional here first right? and it's none of your business, like who I like. And I'll tell you if it is your, and then it'll be your business. Right. And then we can like have a conversation over it if you want. Um, but I definitely, I, I definitely have a really difficult time being like held responsible for other queer folk. Yeah. And I think that's something that, like, I think about a lot. Uh, I was asking one uh, someone, like, for example, to be a part of this podcast, and they were like, I don't want to do it. And I was like, yeah, they don't have any responsibility to, like, speak out for, like, the entire community mm-hmm. that they represent. <laughs> and I think about that all the time. It's, uh, like, having that responsibility carries a lot of weight. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, it's... This, it's funny that you mentioned that on like being an ambassador or a spokesperson for the LGBTQIA alphabet soup community because I feel like <laughs> on one hand I, I view it in that way and then on the other hand there is no way that a single individual can represent all of the layered lived experiences of everyone in this monolithic community that doesn't really exist. I mean it exists but it doesn't exist um, and in that it, it doesn't exist as like a monolith. It's like the continent of Africa, right? Like there's cultural diversity, linguistic diversity, historical diversity, everything, right? Um, yet in the West, we have like this projection of like Africa as like over there. So it's the same <laughs> thing with like the LGBTQ community is, is and there's, there's still racism, discrimination, um, sexism that shows up within the community. Um, this was a conversation I had with my mother recently because she, um, I, and I totally understand her perspective in that she doesn't necessarily have a lot of queer friends, but she's curious about me and what I've gone through as a queer individual and had asked me several years ago when I first came out if she had any questions, if I wouldn't, if I wouldn't mind answering them, which I said, of course not, I don't mind. And then I realized over the years that it became about this community that I can't really, I can't really speak for because there's so much, 
diversity there that I don't have lived experience with. And so flipping that narrative to, I can tell you about my experience at navigating as, and I guess this is radio and I haven't said anything about what I actually like physically show up in the world looking like, but um, I'm white, identify as a third culture kid, didn't live in the US until I was 11. Um, so I can speak from my perspective of that, but I can't speak for anyone else. Um, but then again, in the minds of other people that still see the LGBTQ community as this big monolith and they see you as this ambassador or this uh, delegate, how do you kind of navigate this educational piece while also um, acknowledging that one experience is not the experience of every single member in the community? Right, right. And I think something really important that you said was um, like, like that space that you hold for your mom asking you that question of like what is your experience have been like Alejandro I wonder for you if you had that experience with your family because your story touched upon your family and I wonder how that showed up for you in your life admittedly uh I think I do serve in a way as the LGBTQ ambassador for my family both my mom and dad's side I don't know if I just have closeted cousins or uncles out there but I'm literally the first in both sides of the family to openly identify as gay. And that's just within my nuclear family. I haven't come out to all my extended family members. And I mean, it'll come up when it comes up. Yeah, I definitely, I think I, um, I think the reason why I asked you was because um, something that came up for me when Caitlin was talking was that like I hold more space for my family when they ask me about my queer identity and how that shows up for me. Um, and I thought that was really interesting just um, because I found myself this summer when I was living with my family and then I realized that I haven't lived with them for that long for like seven years plus <laughs> mm. and I was and we were like spending like every waking moment together for a while when I was unemployed and I was like oh cool like we're getting real close <laughs> but um I realized that they like they were learning a lot about me and it was really interesting and cool and like the respect that they gained they're like oh wow like you're not like the kid that moved out when you went to college like no you're like this professional that like works really hard makes his own decision decisions and um and being queer doesn't affect you affects you a lot but it's not like it's like it doesn't mean you're not good at your job or that you're not smart it's like no it like you're still really smart and we appreciate you <laughs> and i was like and that was kind of like a aha moment for me it's like mm. I was like I do have the energy to explain to them what my life is like sometimes and they're gonna have to sit through it <laughs> so that's really cool I'm really interested for you guys because uh, you both sorry for you two you both um, <laughs> really I'm trying so hard to get the guys like out of my vocabulary <laughs> same um, insane <laughs> especially in California and you guys are both from California or Ish. Ish. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Cool. <laughs> uh, you mentioned like diversity, inclusion, and international education, and in international education, like I think there's so many components of diversity, inclusion. It started like I feel like it started in the U.S. I'm not too sure, um, like the field, um, but when we think about as someone who did like um, like teaching abroad, uh, you know, through Peace Corps, I think. Um, it's so interesting what to intersect those components because there's so many dynamics in yeah. this. And I want to—I just wanted to know your perspective on it. Um, I just have it from personal experience, so I feel like you guys might have. Sorry, you two might have. <laughs> we're getting better. There. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're practicing. Okay, you two might have like more insight. Um, I feel like a lot of this has to deal with the idea of citizen diplomacy and kind of shedding a more positive image of America and its diversity abroad. So yes, I can kind of see how that might play out from pseudo-mobility, but in the sense of like Americans going abroad. In my case, and I could be wrong, but I feel like a lot of opportunities that I was afforded was because in applications I would write identifies as Hispanic Latino, mm -hmm. as queer, as a religious minority, um, and just kind of putting that image out there, uh, which I think... It's, it's good. It's good for both students uh, who come from these uh, minority backgrounds for representation purposes. 
But at the same time, it does kind of, you know, play into the government's uh, purpose of shedding this diverse image of America. Um, do you have anything to comment on that, Caitlin? Yeah, where my mind kind of went with that question was this idea of, um, I am obviously like in full support of di diversity and inclusion initiatives. And I feel like it's one of those things like human centered design, like it should just be a given. Um, <laughs> maybe that's a naive perspective, but it, I mean, it's, it's a just way to involve many different populations that make up the United States. And for me, I think in my experience growing up and also my experience abroad as an adult, I primarily lived, I lived in China for a year and the last two summers I've gone back for extended periods of time to travel. And one thing that I find myself curious about um, is how we talk about gender, sexuality, race, and how we in general talk about identity in the United States is so different than how it's perceived and even conceptualized abroad. And I think that that's also something really important to keep in mind. Um, the Navigating Diverse Communities workshop that um, all MISS students attend at the beginning of the school year during orientation, I think is a fantastic way to kind of elevate these these aspects of our identity into the consciousness of the community, mm. of um, especially people that are coming to the U.S., um, offering them some perspective of how um, how we conceive of and how we talk about identity. But I think it's also interesting, like I'll just share briefly my experience in China. I've mentioned I'm non-binary, kind of genderqueer, and get mistaken as sir all the time, um, though I don't identify as like a butch or a dyke or anything. But being living in China, it's very it's a very binary society in that Girls like pink, boys like blue. If you have short hair, you're a boy. Um, if you have long hair, you're a girl. And I was, when I was first living in China, um, I worked at a kindergarten and I had short hair um, and I'm masculine of center. And so I would have these, I don't know, these conversations with parents at the school with my coworkers about gender identity and realized that there was, there was a point where I kind of had to stop talking about identity mm. and how uh, t stop talking about the fluidity because it wasn't it j people didn't get it um and that happens here too for sure but it was it was interesting to to learn that the way that i create my identity the way that i understand it is is culture dependent is like dependent on language and those ways that we talk about identity in the US is different than how it is abroad. And so keeping that in mind when either you have international students coming to the US to study, um, and then also vice versa, if you have people in the US going abroad um, and understanding how, um, how they will be uh, perceived or how they will be identified um, or placed or labeled mm. um, based on the specific language and culture of where they're going. I think is also really important to keep in mind as we talk about identity. So how does self-censorship show up? <laughs> I mean, I very much feel the need to share study or work abroad experiences, much like yourselves. So um, I actually did a year of English teaching uh, with Fulbright in Rabat, Morocco. And again, I'm going to try and tie in all these concepts we've kind of weighed in the past, but just I think when it comes to diversity inclusion efforts, it's also just providing certain groups with the right resources abroad. Mm -hmm. um, I think identifying anywhere under that umbrella term of queer in like uh, Muslim conservative countries is very difficult and there's not enough resources or preparation that students really receive, formal and informal, prior to going to these destinations. As a gay man, I mean, I was able to navigate the space. I had queer and gay friends in Morocco, um, you know, subculture groups. But it wasn't easy accessing those groups in order trying to find out the right outlet. It just, it was happen chance. I met mm -hmm. someone that ended up being like that and kind of helped me navigate that scene. But on the idea of self-censorship, I very much had to think about that constantly. It wasn't a question of like, oh, should they ask, I say it. It's like, no, that's illegal. 
and I don't want to end up in jail. I understand the, the privileges that come with the blue book, the blue passport, but at the same time, I just never wanted to put myself in such a precarious situation. And I think I stayed another year after my Fulbright grant, but having gone back to the States for one summer before um, uh, I decided to move back, I, I quickly realized how emotionally taxing it was just to kind of like keep that very hidden, very censored, and just recognize how blessed we are to live here. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know, when you were mentioning your story in, uh, was it Costa Rica? Mm -hmm. A lot of it was relatable. Um, just kind of needing a break from that after a while and not realizing that maybe the service component wasn't worth the whole trying to repress yourself, your identity. Yeah, and I think like going off of what you said, um, because it, I think it's so pertinent to like what I said earlier in my story, um, like in Costa Rica it's not illegal to be gay, like they're very close to getting to marriage actually oh nice <laughs> yeah go costa rica it's just the it's like the blue dot of that region <laughs> per se like for like from an american context hmm. um like a lot of refugees go there to seek refuge they took in a lot of el salvadorians during the conflict um and things like that but um so when i was in the city it was like a free-for-all like it was really nice i was seeing somebody i could like make out with him like in the street nobody would care but if I, like, got out of the bubble that is, like, the capital of San Jose, like, it was, like, a whole different story. Mm. So I think, like, that, um, and because I lived outside and I lived in these small towns, um, it was really hard to self-censor. I mean, so really hard to, like, um, express myself and my identity. So I, like, had really, like, boring teacher clothes, <laughs> and I couldn't, like, get out of that. Um, and a lot of the times, like, I remember once, um, cause I had to, I was removed from one community and got into another and I quickly, I was like, I need a beard. Like I need a friend that would like pose as my girlfriend. We're going to take some pictures together. I'm going to put it on my WhatsApp <laughs> and all that stuff. And it like, it worked really well. Um, but I hated it. I didn't like it at all. And it was, it was awful, but it was like. I was an elementary school teacher, and I was already called a pedophile in my previous school, so I was like, I have to do this for my safety, mm. otherwise people won't take me seriously. Um, and uh, I had, so like that, it really helped and it alleviated a lot of things that um, in my previous community I didn't do, but it also like, it's like you said, it's like it's repressive and it's bad for your psyche, and now that like I'm back in the States and I'm like, feeling like no one really cares that I'm like queer as much as they did back there. Um, especially in New York City, um, where my, pa my parents, I worked in New York City this summer. Um, it was, I saw myself flourishing in ways that I never thought I could have. And I think that like that productivity and like the ways in which I could express myself, not only through like clothes or like the, my mannerisms, but also like what I'm actually really passionate about became a lot easier. Mm. And I didn't have to think about like all those other barriers that I had before. And that's something that I struggle with because like as someone that's a MIS student, it's like, I love traveling. I love living in other places. I love exploring new cultures and all those things. Um, and really appreciating what they offer to the world, right? Mm. Um, because our culture is so dominant. So um, when you say our, yeah. what do you mean? Um, I think like American culture. Okay. I say I think about like the patriotism and nationalism of our culture and mm. how that infiltrates in many other countries, particularly yeah. in Costa Rica. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But um, but yeah, sorry, I like rambled. <laughs> no apologies. No apologies needed. <laughs> but yeah. So what about you, Caitlin? Like, how does that show up for you, or why does it show up for you? Yeah, I think it's a combination of, of safety and also not being conscious of how I've been socially conditioned to act in certain situations. It's funny, while you know, I was um, thinking about this question and I realized that the, <laughs> the, the people that I kind of go like, you know, try it's basically like on guard kind of a feeling um, 
is usually people of my parents' generation. I feel more so with that, particularly older white men. I feel like I. I get a blanket statement. I mean, it doesn't happen with every everyone, but I think, um, like for example, I was actually at a Miss Donor dinner <laughs> a couple of uh, weeks ago, and the table was predominantly. I think it was me and one other lady, one other female that was at the table. And I think it was a combination of just like what kind of an event it was. But um, I noticed myself um, just tightening up and becoming extremely conscious of how I talk and how I speak. And um, I almost end up performing a little bit more feminine in those situations because I feel like if I'm not eyed up and down, if I don't, if I don't see people or I do see people all the time in those situations, eyeing me up and down, trying to identify like, who is this person? Is she male or female? Um, but I almost like put myself in a situation where I, where I, I don't want to relieve them of doing that work. Not that it's really Mm. work that needs to be done, but it's almost like I'm going to just, um, show up and perform a little bit more feminine so that you can just see me as like a woman and we can move on, even though that's not necessarily a true expression of myself. Um, but I think it's also just from experience of being, whether it's interrogated of people of that generation, um, just kind of learning over time that if I'm 100% myself in those situations, there's usually resistance and it's really emotionally taxing. So I, um, that's how self-censorship shows up is I kind of perform different Mm. identities or gradation of identities, um, based on the environmental context. Um, yeah. And I think, I mean, there's definitely a fear element as well. Like if I'm not like this conversation is happening in Northern California, which might as well, I mean, California has lots of microclimates, but it might as well be like a separate (laughs) microclimate for um, LGBTQ community. But whenever I go to anywhere else, whether it's inland California or another state, it's something that I'm hyper aware of um, that I'm not in Northern California. I'm not in, excuse me, I'm not in San Francisco. Sometimes I don't have... um, as the way that I present myself, I don't necessarily, in certain spaces, I don't have the privilege of just being this anonymous body. Like I'm immediately recognized as queer. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because like you brought it back home to the US mm-hmm. and I think about like the Monterey context a lot as like a Caribbean person mm-hmm. <laughs> and just like every, I remember like um, uh, someone that I knew um, told me like when I had my hair longer, like I looked like better in some way or less ethnic. Mm. And now that like, I'm just like, I'm gonna cut my hair short because I love my hair short. And uh, I just feel like whenever I walk around in Monterey, it's like people are like, and I'm like, I'm literally not going to hurt you. Like, it's fine. <laughs> but I see that a lot back in Monterey and particularly, like, in the West Coast. I think, like, uh, West Coasters are not really used to, like, Caribbean people. <laughs> and because, like, Caribbeans, like, have different, like, physical features and we look different than, like, Central Americans and stuff like that. Um, and, you know, Central American and Mexicans and the West Coast is primarily, like, the Latino community is Mexican and Central American, primarily, not only. Um, So I think I definitely see that a lot. Um, And then for whatever reason, like once people get to know me and they realize that I'm queer, they're like, oh, okay, he's fine. Mm. And it's like, all right. like I was like, no, now I'm no longer a threat to you. (laughs) Um, So, yeah. Uh, How do you, do you feel like that same way sometimes, uh, Alejandro? Like, or self-censorship? showing up for you in similar ways in the U.S.? In the U.S.? Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, I think the one that immediately comes to mind is within the church, um, specifically the Catholic church. I acknowledge that there are a lot of other Christian denominations out there that are a lot more accepting of LGBTQ members, but um, there's always one particular story that comes to mind. When I was uh, applying 
to be a Eucharistic minister at my home church. It was a, literally a one-on-one interview with me and the priest at my church. And the very last question he asked me, are you planning on getting married by the Catholic Church? And I'm like, oh crap, I have to lie in the house of God. Um, otherwise, I'm not going to get this position because I don't want to have that conversation about like, no, well, why not? And I said, yes. I mean, the optimistic person in me is hoping that some years from now, maybe with some major, major reform, come on, Pope Francis, uh, they'll allow <laughs> gay and lesbian and LGBTQ members to like, get married to the church, but probably not within our lifetime. But yeah, uh, a lot of self-censorship on that end. Uh, outside the church context, I don't know. I can, there was something you mentioned earlier about the whole Caribbean being othered here in Monterey, but then as soon as you drop the whole queer identity, it's like, okay, he's safe. I can relate to that, but on a different level. I think when it comes to, I don't know how I'm perceived, but oftentimes uh, I, I like associating or hanging out with uh, the female crowd. And if they don't know my queer identity, that can sometimes come across as maybe being flirtatious or trying to hit on them. And I feel like I immediately have to bring that out in order for them to like drop their guard mm. and be accepted. And it's just, it's something that I wish didn't have to exist. I understand why it might, but um, it's kind of like almost reverse censorship, like having to open up in order to be accepted. I don't yeah. know. I, yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a complicated issue. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So. It's interesting this i mean it's kind of tangentially related but it's related to your curiosities that i have about you both in addition to what you just shared alejandro about almost having to like come out in order to make others feel safe mm. <laughs> that people especially, essentially that <laughs> yeah and um so a couple of um a couple of when was it yeah i guess it was a couple of weeks ago um I bought a couple of dresses and at my birthday party, I wore dresses and for anyone who's known me probably hasn't seen me in a dress since I was 21 and that was almost 10 years ago. Um, and it was fascinating to me because I'm usually very masculine presenting, um, masculine of center presenting. It blew my mind how, how differently people interacted with me and my body mm. and how many times compared to when normally I don't like pe normally people don't touch me and I don't know if that's an energetic thing or I'm not necessarily not a touchy-feely person but just there's not really a lot of contact in conversation unless it's someone that I'm really close with but it was fascinating to me the amount of unwarranted touching that happened when I was more feminine presenting and performing more mm. femininity than I normally do because I had long earrings on, I had I was wearing makeup and I was in these long flowy dresses. And even yeah, even people that know me as queer and I would I would say like even people within the queer community, the amount of touching that was going on and how much I had to say stop. Like, can you not do that anymore, please? Thank you. It was fascinating to me. So it basically, the point being how, I don't know, just the kind, the when it comes to gender performance and masculinity and femininity and how those are perceived and how maybe femininity kind of gives people feel or gives people almost like permission to be more flirtatious or open or touchy, even though that's not the case at all. Um, but that was, that's interesting to navigate and it. It felt kind of empowering because it felt like I, it was like a, a hack into, I can use this femininity to get what I want. But also there was this fear that came with like, wow, th this is so unwarranted and this is so not what I'm used to. Mm -hmm. Just people feeling like they can touch me without permission. Mm -hmm. Um, so I guess like, uh, just a general question or something that I'm kind of sitting with because I'm not male I identified of how um, someone who identifies as a queer, queer male that performs femininity or feels more feminine, how that shows up in male communities or how that is, yeah, how that is perceived. And that, I mean, I guess I suppose a rhetorical question, but also, I mean, mm -hmm. I don't know. No, like, and that's where my mind was going, so I'm glad you asked because... 
Um, first of all, thank you for saying that because that's fascinating. And I think that, and also just, um, yeah, I didn't even think about it, to be honest. And like, but I can see how that obviously can happen. And um, uh, it's, it's really interesting to me how femininity allows for, um, like, I guess, more touch or like allows for more harassment in some ways. Um, and I think about that um, as someone who is feminine and has been getting more comfortable with femininity. I'm not saying like I'm full-blown femme, but I do like painting my nails every now and then. I do like waving my hands like around sometimes. And um, I mean, when I think about it in like, especially like at bars or something like that, um, men can feel like more of a for whatever reason, like, they feel like that's permission to, like, touch you or um, do something like that. Where, um, and, and I feel like the same. It's, like, when I, when I accessed that when I was younger, like, when I first started going to bars, and I was in New York City, like, in college, so um, I, like, accessed that really fast. <laughs> and um, being, like, being feminine at bars, like, they were, like, it was just kind of, like, immediately touch, grab. And then I think, like, I didn't really think about that effect or what was happening because I was like, it's just, this is what happens. And then I think it really wasn't until recently, like, and I'm not saying, like, just in the like, last few months, but, like, the last few years that I'm like, that's not okay. And it's, um, and learning those boundaries um, shows up in so many ways. And I think, like, even in family, I would say, like, it doesn't have to be physical, like, it can be, like, emotional, like, in terms of, like, oh, like, we perceive you, like, I'm one of uh, four boys, mm. so, like, my parents very much treat me as, like, the girl <laughs> of, like, the family, so they're, like, I remember when I was younger and when I came out, because I came out when I was 15, they were, like, no sleepovers, like, that's it. But, like, my brothers would sleep over everyone else's, um, everyone, like, their friends' houses all the time. And, um, and just, like, that kind of, like, policing of some, in some way was, like, really interesting because I was, like, if I'm a man who's just feminine, imagine if my parents had, like, a, like, you know, a daughter. It would just mm. be a completely, it would be, like, such, I can see, like, um, similar things playing out. Mm. But um, but in bars, I mean, yeah, it's like if you're a man who, especially particularly because in the gay culture, I'm going to say, like, masculinity is looked up upon, like, as, like, this kind of, like, I need, like, that's, like, what you should be. Um, it almost, like, allows, like, it they almost feel, like, empowered or have some sort of power over mm. feminine men. Mm. Um and that doesn't mean that feminine men can have more power sometimes over masculine men, but like generally speaking, that's what is accepted by society. And they probably have an easier time explaining to their friends that they're gay because it's like, they're like, well, he's like another bro. Hmm. Whereas like for feminine boys, there's a different story, I think. And I, and I don't know if like we have even explored enough in our society, to be honest. Um, and especially for like in the East Coast at least, or like for Caribbean people, it's like a totally different story mm -hmm. for sure. Um, I'm assuming like for people of color in general, it's like kind of a rough story. But yeah, what do you think, Alejandro? For me personally, I don't ever think or try and recognize them acting too femme or too masculine. They just, mm -hmm. I think I'm a good combination of both. They just come up whenever. Mm -hmm. um, I don't identify with, with more than one, more with one than the other per yeah. se. But um, I don't know. I was also definitely uh, enlightened with your story, Caitlin. Um, that was really interesting, almost like a social experience, just to kind of see how just physically changing one's clothing can have such a profound effect on the experience. Do you have any mentors that like helped you in your queerness? Um, in relation to like your other identities that we talked about today, being religious, um, being non-binary. Um, so yeah, I just want to hear what you what you think. Sure. I was very thankful for one of the uh, serving priests at the Catholic community at my undergrad. Um, although not 
out, I had a pretty good idea that he might be queer or gay. And he advocated a lot for like LGBTQ inclusion in the church, um, specifically reaching out to Latino students. Mm. Um, I don't know why or how, but for some reason, the majority of Latino or brown POC people at my undergrad were, well, the men at least were gay for whatever reasons you might want to, I don't know, come up with. And I remember when he first came into his position at our church, um, the dean of the, culture, the Latino cultural house at our campus reached out to him and basically told him, there's a lot of students here who are grappling with this identity conflict. Could you reach out to them? And he did, and he did a great job about it. And I think that was the first time that I actually attended mass with my uh, boyfriend at the time. And everyone was fully aware that we were together and never made a big deal out of it. And we felt super welcome. So the fact that there are people like him um, and, you know, like James Martin, like I mentioned earlier, who can advocate for inclusion of these minority communities within the church, those are the mentors I look up to. And for a lot of people who ask me, like, well, considering that there are other denominations out there, like, for example, Episcopalians, those are the ones that I always get referred back to because they're just like, they're essentially Catholics, but more progressive. They, you know, they accept women in the church uh, with like positions of power. They, they can wed uh, gay people and they essentially follow the same like uh, order that a Catholic mass does in their structure. But one friend who's actually a pretty hardcore feminist theologian basically told me uh, what, when she considers why she's still with the Catholic church, considering that it doesn't always align with her politics, She's like, it's, it's kind of like a child. You don't abandon them because they're not where they need to be. You just kind mm. of work with them and keep advocating for them. And that's kind of how I feel um, personally with the Catholic Church. It's also very inherent in Mexican culture. So it's something I could never really fully escape. So, yeah. When I was in, so I moved to the States when I was 11 and was living with a single mom. So I spent a lot of time during middle school and high school at this um, local community center. And it was essentially a place they had video games and movies playing and candy and stuff. And it was basically for a place for kids to go after school and wait to be picked up. And um, this was in Massachusetts in the early 2000s. And so this is when, it, uh, specifically in 2004, when um, Massachusetts passed gay marriage. Um, the, the person who ran the drop-in center, who was the youth coordinator for the town that I went to high school in, she um, was, uh, or she is, she's still around, she's gay. And um, she just was... really open and really supportive of students and really educational or served a really educational role for not only me, but for the entire community. And I remember when I was first kind of contemplating my sexuality when I was 17, I went and talked to her because I knew she was a safe person to go to. She was the person who actually taught me what the Kinsey scale was, which if anyone's listening and isn't sure what that is, it basically posits that um, sexuality is a, is, is, is fluid in that you can, you know, say the scale is one from one to six, one, you're straight, um, six, you're completely gay and three, you're bisexual. Um, and that people can be anywhere on that scale. And so that mm -hmm. was just having her as a presence as someone who was a successful LGBT person who cared so much. That was just, that was really my first mentor in terms of, um, being okay with my identity, however it <laughs> chose to evolve or show up on a given day. And in college, it was the same thing. It was um, tying back to what I shared in the beginning um, about my story in fighting critical theory and creative writing. Mm. Um, my professor and thesis mentor, Anil Rollin, who teaches at Soka University of America in um, Southern California, he was the first person that introduced um, like queer texts to me and not only, you know, texts about queer theory and the LGBTQ experience, but um, creative writing that kind of like twisted the boundaries of what is coherent, logical writing. And so him and a couple other professors, um, that's how I found them. I went, went to college and they taught there. But I think really when I, what I seek for in mentors is, and what I'm really drawn to about people is, um, 
I really, I really don't like the word authenticity too much because it brings up a lot of anyway, but it's, (laughs) 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 but I mean, authenticity in terms of self-expression and living boldly as one is Mm -hmm. and being unapologetic about how that shows up. And that, for me, I definitely felt that with Anil. I definitely felt that with Becca, who was um, my mentor in high school. Um, and it's still something that I seek. Um, I seek out in people um, that are living boldly, especially queer folk that are that bring more, themselves 100% to whatever it is that they're doing and also reach out and and advocate for others, even if they're not of the LGBTQ community. Um, and I think, yeah, that's what I've learned from the people that I look up to and that the people that I consider mentors is just to really, if we're only on this planet for one lifetime in this particular iteration of like Adams, then why not just express it to its fullest, um, to the best of our ability. Um, so yeah, it's <laughs> awesome. a long winded answer. To no, mentors, that's but. awesome. That was awesome. <laughs> I loved it. Um, I think like I've mentioned this before, but I don't think I have, um, in our previous meeting, I don't have any queer mentors per se. Um, and I've constantly been looking for one and it's just, I've been hitting a wall like ever since I started, I think I started like three years ago actively looking. Um, but I will say that the people that have showed up in my life as mentors have came up in such, um, in religious ways and also in um, just from a perspective of um, a group of people. Um, so my first one I'm going to say is my madrina, which is my godmother. She is a white woman um, who's straight, married with kids. and But I lived with her when I was in high school for one year um, because my parents, like, they moved out of town and I wanted to stay. Um, and thankfully they gave me the opportunity to stay for my last year of high school. Um, and she really like, I remember one time I, uh, was, I met up with this guy and we, and I was like, do you want to hang out in my, uh, do you want to come over and hang out in my room? And I asked my godmother, I was like, is it okay if I bring like a boy that I like over? And I was, and she was like, yeah, that's fine. As long as you just keep the door open. And I was like, that was like the first time where I was like, oh my God, like, she's like, she doesn't care. (laughs) You know, she's like, she's treating me like as her child because I'm still in school and that's fine. And, um, it made me feel really validated for like who I was. And, uh, because of like when I was with my parents, like that wasn't a thing. And I, and I was like, I, I dated another person while I was in high school and I had to like hide it from them. Um, and I mean, we didn't like the guy and I didn't last very long, but um, she really informed a lot of my political views. She really informed like what it, what it means to be a person who seeks justice, what it means to be a complicated person. And the fact that identity really is so like fluid. <laughs> And I know that she's like a straight white woman who, you know, I mean, you could deliver her as a white savior because uh, she's done things like volunteer abroad stuff. But like she really came from a genuine place of seeking justice for people. And I thought that that really informed like who I was Hmm. and not only like who I slept with or who I had romantic interest in. Um, And... I really love that. So because of her, I, I did a year of service in, um, as a Jesuit volunteer, which is a religious, as a religious <laughs> volunteer program. And, um, and because of her, I was like, I also like, that's why I wanted to do Peace Corps because she didn't do Peace Corps, but she did another, she did Mary Knoll, another religious program as Catholic, um, which is, which sent her to Peru for four years, um, with her husband. Um, and because she took me in, I also saw that she knew that I needed something. And for me, it was like the, the, that experience of high school, like there in California where I grew up. Um, and for her, that meant really like doing anything she could to, for me to have that experience and not have this like kind of 
disrupted like childhood. Um, and I really like appreciated that. And the other one was like I said that I meant I did Jesuit volunteer. I was a Jesuit volunteer, and I lived with a community of eight of us <laughs> in one house, and we didn't have internet. We had to do all these activities together. Um, it was a lot of bonding, but they became like my best friends, and um, none of them are queer. Um, they're all straight. Most of them are white. <laughs> Um, only one of them uh, is Mexican-American. And all of them really held me at a place where I don't feel like I've been held or supported before. And for that reason, I think that they have been my mentors spiritually um, in my queerness. They really supported every time that I like explored something feminine or anything like that. Um, so I would say like that those two are my main. And I'm looking for my queer mentor, like a mentor who is queer, and I'm like open to that and it, if you're out there it. listening call if you're out there <laughs> listening 1-800-HELP-CARLOS-NOW yeah. <laughs> buy that hotline <laughs> and I think with that I think we're okay do we want to add anything else this has been really awesome yeah this has been really cool yeah the only thing that I can think of is like a caveat that like all we represent is like our own experience and that this is not like a blanket thing for everyone that's navigating these questions of identity, sexuality, gender expression, what it means to be queer um, and how that intersects with your religious background, with your ethnic background, with your race, with all of these things. Um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I said <it> <laughs> what she said. <laughs> But hopefully this could be a conversation starting point, returning point for not only us um, who participated in this discussion, but for listeners um, and for other students of this. Just sending out those vibes. <laughs> well said, Caitlin. <laughs> and with that, thank you, Miss Radio, and thank you, Quam, for providing these awesome humans. I want to thank you both for being so vulnerable. Thanks again to the crew from Quam, Caitlin, Carlos, and Alejandro. I'm so glad to have gotten to know all three of you better through this episode of Miss Radio. We are going to have even more great stories coming to you soon. Next week, we will be getting back to some episodes from the Affordable Housing and Homelessness series with some interviews conducted by our own Angela Gonzalez. And next Thursday, November 15th, mark your calendars for 6.30 p.m., Ron Good, the tribal chair of the North Fork Mono Tribe, is coming to drop some traditional ecological knowledge on all of us. The event is called Ron Good, Re-Envisioning the Human-Land Relationship, with a special focus on our relationship with fire. Alright, that's it for this episode of Miss Radio. Thank you for tuning in. Please share this episode. Leave us a review if you can on Facebook. Like our page. Share it with your friends. If you like what you're hearing, it helps us out a lot to get the word out. And of course, send us feedback. My email is gbsanders at miss.edu. And, you know, social media, Facebook, you know the drill. And one final shout out to Caitlin, aka Binkadink, for providing the sweet tunes that you heard at the beginning and end of this program. All right, peace out. <laughs>